0: Hi, this is laura friedman i'm the president of the foundation for middle east peace it's my pleasure to present this special edition of the occupied thoughts podcast featuring our very own peter beinart this edition features peter in conversation with omar barghouti one of the founders and leaders of the global bds movement we are happy and proud to be able to bring this constructive and civil conversation about bds to a washington audience and we're happy through this podcast to bring it to you today The podcast leads off with opening remarks from the Arab American Institute's Jim Zogby. AAI was a co-sponsor of this event, along with NYU. And then it goes directly into the conversation with Peter and Omar, followed by Q&A from the audience. Enjoy.
1: Good morning, I'm Jim Zogby. I'm president of the Arab American Institute. And as you no doubt can gather, uh, Omar Barghouti is not with us. I just want to tell you what happened on April Uh, 10th, he was denied entry into the United States um, at Ben-Gurion Airport, despite the fact that he had an existing visa to the U.S. Um, He is, as you know, the founder of the Palestinian Civil Rights Movement for Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions. Uh, He was to come here for a speaking tour here in Washington uh, and in New York um, and in Philadelphia. Um, He's had problems before, leaving uh, israel had a travel ban Uh, the ban uh, ended amnesty international protested the ban ended and uh, we assumed that it would be okay for him to travel Um, he was was not okay the u.s decided to deny him entry we still don't know the exact reasons for it and we will um, we will be in uh, litigating i I just wanted to make the point though that uh, uh What is especially troubling is that there are numerous pieces of legislation and or resolutions uh, denouncing BDS and some of them calling out Mr. Barkudi by name. And so a person much denounced and much defamed should have the opportunity to engage in conversation. Uh, We wrote to all the members of Congress who were sponsors of the legislation asking if they would want to meet. Um, The response has been to deny him entry. Uh, that, to me, is a clear uh, violation of our rights uh, as American citizens, not only Mr. Barghouti's rights, but our rights uh, to engage in civil discourse on, and meaningful conversation about issues of great national importance. Uh, our, our regressive discriminatory immigration laws um, are an impediment to, to free speech, and so we will be exploring avenues uh, available to us Mr. Barghouti is on the screen. Uh, As you know, founder of the BDS movement, Peter Beinart will conduct the the conversation. Uh, Peter is, uh, as you know, a professor at uh, City University of New York. He's a writer for The Forward and The Atlantic, and he is one of my must-read columnists. And I thank you very much, Peter, for doing this, and thank you, Omar, um, and we will be doing our best to get you get you here. Thank you. Thanks. Um,
2: thank you. Well, thank you to you, Omar, and thank you to, to all of you for coming. Um, I, um, uh, I'm going to uh, ask Omar questions for about uh, 45 minutes or so, and then turn it over to you to ask Omar questions. Um, some of the questions will reflect, my questions to Omar will reflect the fact that I have my concerns and criticisms of The BDS movement, but um, it says in Pirkei Avot in the Mishnah, who is wise, the one who learns from all people. Um, So I decided to do this conversation because I believe in learning from people who disagree with me and learning from people who have had experiences that I have not had. And I've not lived as a Palestinian, uh, living without basic rights. uh, And so for me, uh, whatever my own personal views and differences, it's important for me to listen to people who've had those experiences. Um, And um, Omar, I wanted to just um, start by asking you to just talk a little bit about what has just happened with you not being permitted into the United States. How do you understand what's happened? And um, just talk a little bit about what this has meant – been like personally for you.
3: Uh, Thanks, Peter. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, everyone in attendance uh, for having me, although through a screen, not uh, in person. But I do appreciate that I am given a chance to speak. Uh, despite the uh, attempts to silence me and to silence uh, Palestinian voices in general. Uh, I think what happened to me yesterday morning at Ben Gurion airport is just part of an ongoing uh, repression by Israel directly or by proxy by the United States on behalf of Israel uh, to silence human rights defenders in the BDS movement, uh, be it Palestinian, Israeli, or international human rights defenders who are active in the BDS movement. Uh, Israel has been working uh, very hard since 2014 uh, to shut us down, and the movement keeps growing. So they're getting uh, frustrated and they resorting. To more McCarthyite, more repressive uh, uh, intimidation, bullying, and violation of basic rights to silence us. Uh, So by uh, having the U.S. immigration ban me from entering the U.S., uh, this is really a blatant attempt uh, to silence uh, my voice, and it's taking uh, the opposition to BDS in this uh, uh, right-wing, xenophobic U.S. administration to a higher level which is dangerous, not just for Palestinians, I think, it's dangerous for all uh, people who care about civil rights. Um, thank you. Um,
2: um, I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about your own uh, personal story, yeah, your family story, um, uh, where your parents came from, uh, where you grew up, and how your life experience led you to the activist work that you do.
3: My mother's, mother's side, so my grandmother's side, comes from Safad in the Galilee, in the north of present-day Israel. Uh, her family was ethnically cleansed in, during the Nakba of 1948. Uh, my, my father's side comes from a village near Ramallah, uh, and indeed, most of the family was expelled in the 1967 occupation of the West Bank. Um, So both both sides of my family are refugees uh, or internally displaced persons in some cases. Uh, I grew up in such a refugee family uh, in uh, Qatar, in Egypt, and then in the United States. Uh, My father was one of the founders in 1964 of the Palestine Liberation Organization, the PLO. He wasn't independent. He wasn't part of any party. Uh, My mother was a social activist, uh, active particularly with the General Union of Palestinian Women. Uh, From both my parents, I learned a lot. Uh, Although they had very diverse views, my father was more religious, my mother was more secular. They always had disagreements on many, many things. So we grew up in this uh, atmosphere of debate, atmosphere of uh, discussion and and disagreements and and learning from each other. Uh, But first and foremost, I learned as a son of refugees that um, I have a right to go home I have a right to be together, and I I feel uh, uh, not complete when I'm not able to fulfill the dream of living in my homeland. So I lived my life in Cairo, in, in New York, and elsewhere, uh, dreaming of that. And when I had a chance uh, um, uh, to come to my homeland uh, through marriage of my wife, who is a Palestinian citizen of Israel, uh, the dream came true. And I've been living here for 26 years or so.
2: So talk a little bit about what it's like for you as a, as a Palestinian. I gather you're now a permanent resident uh, of Israel and not a citizen. Um, just tell me about, talk a little bit about what it's like to live as a Palestinian in Israel. Your, in your terms of your daily, your, how, does that, how does that experience inform your daily interactions?
3: Um. It varies from the mundane uh, uh, issues of going to health services or dealing with certain ministries uh, and so on, where you feel the discrimination in every aspect. Uh, to learning the reality of communities, Palestinian communities around who are denied uh, basic rights. So when I walk uh, um, on the street, for example, and I do not walk alone, by the way, because uh, there are so many threats against me, but when, when I walk for uh, a daily walk, a daily stroll by the beach in, in Acre, where I live, for example, uh, you see the road signs, the names of the roads, they're mostly, uh, most of them, Roads, for example, are names of dead white Zionists who have led uh, occupation and colonization and ethnic cleansing and so on. And they're celebrated. All the roads' names in, in Acre, which is a mixed uh, city with a substantial Palestinian minority, are all uh, uh, like that. Uh, you also feel discrimination in the education system. All our friends have their kids in Israeli schools, in the Arab sector, which is different than the Jewish sector. Uh, If the Jewish sector uh, in in schools is uh, comparable to Europe, the Palestinian Arab sector is comparable to third world countries, Uh, um, far lower budgets, discrimination in every aspect. So discrimination is very real uh, to us in every uh, aspect of life, not just the theoretical aspect that 93% of the land controlled by Israel is available only for Jewish development and, and Palestinian citizens of the state, cannot claim to to live there, to own it, to rent it, and so on. It's also the day-to-day reality, uh, you feel it. Not to mention how we are treated in ministries, we're treated by the authorities in every aspect.
2: So I wanna ask a little bit about the, the roots of the creation of the, of the boycott, divestment, sanction movement. Um, I'm interested in talking about what were the debates inside Palestinian civil society leading up to that? What was the relationship between the experience of the second intifada between 2000 and 2004 and then the creation of the of the boycott divestment sanctions movement afterwards why did it emerge at this at this particular moment in the history of israel and palestine
3: uh, I think the Boycott Divestment Sanctions, or BDS movement, um, um, is is rooted in a very long heritage of Palestinian uh, popular nonviolent resistance. Uh, so we did not start dealing with boycotts in 2005. As many would know, since 1920s, Palestinians have used boycotts against the British mandate and the onslaught of Zionist settler colonialism uh, then. Boycotts were, were uh, popular forms of, uh, of nonviolent resistance as far back as the 1920s. Um, with the first intifada, boycotts uh, became much more prevalent, much more uh, um, uh, spread throughout the West Bank and Gaza in the 1967 occupied territory. Uh, but what changed in 2005 is the ICJ, the International Court of Justice, ruling against Israel's apartheid wall in 2004, that it's illegal, a year after that ruling, the world community under U.S. hegemony was unable or unwilling to hold Israel to account and to make it stop the construction of this illegal wall, not to mention the colonies, the settlements, and, and so on. So most Palestinians realized that there is nothing to be hoped for from the United Nations under U.S. hegemony. We, they will not deliver justice to us, and we, drive, we, we, we must take our nonviolent popular resistance to the global scene. So we started thinking of a globalized Palestinian nonviolent resistance. It's not enough to resist internally the wall and the colonies and the ethnic cleansing and the discrimination and the home demolition and the siege and so on, and the denial of refugee rights. It's important to take it to the international scene. The most important principle there Since BDS is very much inspired by the South African anti-apartheid movement and the U.S. civil rights movement, a very important principle in the movement uh, uh, stems from something uh, Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. once said. He said, boycott at a very basic level is withdrawing support from an evil system. When you think about that, Palestinians are asking the international community, institutions, churches, universities to stop their complicity in enabling Israel to violate our human rights. It's not much to ask. It's not charitable. It's a basic profound moral obligation.
2: You talked about uh, BDS as a nonviolent movement. Um, You also mentioned the civil rights movement and South Africa. Uh, um, In South Africa, as as you know, the ANC actually also supported uh, acts of violence. The civil right In the Civil Rights Movement, Martin Luther King famously morally opposed acts of violence. Um, what is your own personal view about acts of violence against Israeli Jews, whether those be stabbings or suicide bombings or other things that, um, that, uh, that, that actually can take human life?
3: Uh, I think uh, we in the BDS Movement subscribe to what the Brazilian educator, Paulo Freire, uh, described, when he said that with the beginning of oppression, violence has started when uh, a people are oppressed when they're denied their rights when they're ethnically cleansed that is the beginning of violence that's the root cause of violence anything beyond that by the oppressed community against the oppressor is a form of reaction a resistance to that uh, initial violence regardless uh, as a non-violent human rights movement we're interested in ending all violence and to end all violence uh, we must and the root cause of violence, that is occupation, settler colonialism, and apartheid. BDS is strictly a nonviolent uh, human rights movement. It is anchored in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and therefore it rejects all forms of racism, including uh, Islamophobia, anti-black racism, sexism, anti-LGBT, and certainly anti-Semitism, anti-Jewish bigotry that is categorically opposed in, in our movement. But Even though we recognize, all people under oppression recognize that the United Nations since 1982 very explicitly uh, gave the right to people under foreign occupation to resist by all means, including armed resistance, the UN at the same time said that this armed resistance has to target combatants only. So we think it is illegal and it is immoral to target non-combatants. Uh, adhering to international law, we have to adhere to all aspects of international law, not just be cherry-picking the parts that we prefer.
2: So when you say non-combatants, that means you believe in the legitimacy of violence against Israeli soldiers, but not violence against Israeli civilians? Does that also include Israeli settlers?
3: No, I didn't say what I believe in. I said what the UN believes in. Sorry, but I'm asking Uh, you. Uh, we stick to international law and what the UN uh, supports. So we do not take any specific position. The BDS movement has not taken any explicit position on the issue of violence, except that to end all violence, we must address the root cause of violence, which is occupation and apartheid and denial of refugee rights, of course.
2: But if you, if you oppose – and tell me if I'm getting you wrong – if you oppose violence against Israeli civilians, then would you not oppose – uh, rockets launched by Hamas or Islamic Jihad or, or another group into into Israel.
3: Uh, it's we oppose all violence against non-combatants, regardless uh, who it's coming from, the initial oppressor or the reacting oppressed.
2: Okay. Um, I wanted to ask about the the this moment for the BDS movement. Um, uh, I, I think um, if one were to ask uh, um, Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu would say. Israel's being isolated. We have the best foreign relations that we can remember. We have great, rela- great relations with the ethnic nationalist government in, in, uh, in India and, and the new government in Brazil. And the Gulf states are practically hugging us uh, as allies against Iran. And countries all in Africa and Eastern Europe are coming to us for our technology. So he, would, he might say, isolation? It's quite to the contrary. We're becoming less isolated. Thus, the BDS movement is failing. So how would you respond?
3: Well, that could take an hour, but I'm trying to be very. <laughs> <ready. laughs> we have time. That that I'll, I'll try to be as brief as possible. Uh, notice the common thread between all the regimes and states you've mentioned: the far right. Israel has become the poster boy for the far right under Trump's leadership. Uh, the far right, xenophobic right, even fascist right, from Bolsonaro in Brazil. To orban in hungary and many many in between all the fascist parties in europe uh, uh, look up to israel as a model and in fact they come to tel aviv as their mecca to learn from israel uh, methods of uh, securitization militarization oppression denial of arab and muslim rights and, and so on Uh, And that's uh, no Israeli should be comfortable with this fact. In fact, many Israelis are extremely worried about their far-right government being in bed with the anti-Semites of the world. It's like the anti-Semitic club of the world coming to Tel Aviv and being uh, uh, hugged by this uh, far-right government. In fact, when the far-right leaders of Eastern Europe came to uh, Israel recently... There was an uproar by some liberal Zionists. And a member of the Likud in Parliament, a member of the Knesset, uh, responded to the attacks that those are anti-Semitic leaders. How could Israel receive them? She said, yes, they may be anti-Semitic, but they like us. They like Israel. So it's okay. So, so now it's, the new formula is that it's okay to be anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish, as long as you support Israel's rights. And being in bed with despotic Arab regimes, Uh, is not exactly something I would be proud of. Uh, Yes, Israel has established uh, good and warming relations with all the despots uh, in the Arab region, from the Saudi monarch to the United Arab Emirates to Bahrain to others, uh, uh, hardly something to be proud of. At the same time, a J Street poll in 2014, that's five years ago, we've come a long way since. In 2014, a J Street poll showed that 46% of young Jewish American unorthodox men support a full boycott of Israel to end its occupation. So Israel is winning the far right around the world, absolutely. It's selling more weapons to the far right regimes and the dictatorships uh, across the world, absolutely. But it is losing its moral statute around the world. It is losing the support of liberals around the world, including many uh, Jewish millennials who are liberal at heart and can no longer reconcile their liberal values with what Israel and Zionism stand for today, ethnic cleansing, apartheid, uh, uh, xenophobia, and racism.
2: So some of our listeners may understand the three planks of the BDS movement, the three kind of demands of the BDS movement, uh, um, but some may not, so I wanted to just give you the opportunity to lay them out and then I have some questions about them.
3: Okay, uh, the BDS call of 2005 Uh, calls for ending the 1967 occupation of all Arab territories, that means the uh, Syrian Golan Heights, the occupied Palestinian territory, Gaza, and the West Bank, including East Jerusalem. Number two, ending the system of racial inequality for Palestinian citizens of present-day Israel, which meets the UN definition of apartheid, and I can can explain that a bit more. Third, the rights of refugees, uh, UN-stipulated rights of refugees, including the right to return and to reparations. Uh, the main point, uh, Peter, about uh, those three rights that all, all Palestinian civil society agreed on is that they address the basic rights of all Palestinians, the main, the main constituencies. Basically, Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza, who are 38 percent, Palestinians in Israel, who are 12 percent, and Palestinians in exile, who are 50 percent. So we address the basic rights of, of all Palestinians.
2: Okay, so a few questions. First of all, just, it's a small point, but on the Golan Heights. Syria is uh, uh, a very repressive dictatorship that's also in a state of civil war with some very, very, uh, maybe even more illiberal um, uh, Islamist uh, militant and uh, terrorist jihadist groups. How would it further human rights for Israel
3: to return the
2: Golan Heights to Syria?
3: I'm not sure that's the correct question. What gives Israel the right to occupy any territory, regardless who's ruling that country? By this token, the whole world has a right to occupy the United States because it's ruled by Trump. <laughs> um,
2: to be fair, I, I'm not sure Trump is, is, is Bashar Assad, but I take your point. Go ahead. Mm. Oh, okay, um, so under the three planks of the BDS movement, if, and I recognize It's not likely at this point. If there were to be a a Palestinian state were created, and the Palestinian national movement were to agree to the creation of this Palestinian state near or on the 1967 lines, and there were to be some agreement between Israel and the Palestinian and the PLO on the question of refugees, you as Omar Barghouti would still support. A boycott of israel because it would not have because of the 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 third plank having to do with israel's internal character inside the 67 lines would still be discriminatory in your view
3: my view is less important than the absolute majority of the palestinians view Uh, the absolute majority of palestinians who are represented in the bds movement this is the largest movement in palestinian society and possibly one of the largest movements in Palestinian history, by the way. It's, it's, it's a near consensus in Palestinian society behind BDS. Almost all Palestinians agree that the rights of refugees are the absolute most important rights. They are the litmus test for justice uh, to settle this uh, um, colonial conflict and reach a sustainable and comprehensive peace. We, uh, Palestinian refugees' rights must be addressed like all refugees around the world. Uh, Jewish refugees from World War II refugees in Darfur in in Bosnia in Kosovo in all cases where you have refugees, all refugees around the world, regardless of identity, have a right to return and to reparations. Palestinians should not be denied that basic right because otherwise it would be uh, racist it would be discriminating against Palestinian refugees simply because it's inconvenient we would upset the demographic makeup of Israel, which is an artificial demographic makeup that was achieved through sustained ethnic cleansing, the the initial ethnic cleansing of 1948 and ongoing. Uh, um, Columnists like Michelle Goldberg have have raised this point even in in the New York Times, saying, why should liberal Americans uh, accept that Israel has a right to maintain this demographic uh, superiority and deny the indigenous people of the land their rights just to maintain a Jewish supremacist a state so, so uh, the issue is not whether a two state solution can address this or not. The issue is under international law, in a one state or two state or five state solution, all human rights must be accommodated, all people's rights must be accommodated. You cannot have a two state solution where one of the two states is an apartheid state. What gives any state to, to have a right to be an apartheid state? N- no state can claim that right. Uh, uh, no state can deny refugees their uh, UN stipulated right to return in a one state solution or two state solution. Neither state can deny refugees their rights. And Human Rights Watch reminded uh, Clinton, Ehud Barak, and Yasser Arafat, as they were uh, negotiating uh, in Camp David, that this right of return is unextinguishable. And it's a personal decision as well as a collective decision by the refugees.
2: So am I right in in understanding then that That I mean, in the real world, political settlements often fall short of, often far short of full justice. But even if there were to be a political settlement that ended, that resulted in a Palestinian state, uh, the boycott, divestment, sanctions movement would continue.
3: It would continue until the end of occupation, uh, recognition and respect for Palestinian refugees' rights, and the end of apartheid.
2: So I wanted to ask a little bit about the definition of, a, of, of apartheid. Um, uh, I, I know that, that um, the way that boycott divestment, sanction movement m- uses the term apartheid is not specifically to refer to, 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 refer to the situation in South Africa, um, but to refer to a more global principle. Um, and I think the Rome, uh, the International Court, the, the Rome Statute referred to it as um, institutionalized regime of systematic oppression and domination by one racial group over any other, and presumably even if the subordinated group has the right to vote, as Palestinian citizens of Israel do. So by that standard, is the United States not also an apartheid state?
3: The United States was an apartheid state in the Jim Crow era, when blacks were denied equal rights simply because they're black, based on their identity. If the U.S. today adopted laws, and some may argue even today uh, against the Native Americans, the the first nations of the United States, some might say that they are suffering from remnants of uh, U.S. apartheid. Uh, But that's a legal argument that many international experts are are debating. Regardless, if the United States today were to adopt laws like Israel has, uh, more than 65 laws Israel has, that discriminate against a certain part of the citizenry, based on their identity, like saying uh, this is a white Christian nation, uh, uh, as Richard Spencer would have it, and if you're Jewish, Muslim, Hindu, whatever, well, tough luck. It's not your nation. It's the state of the white Christians. Those who are not white and Christian can find another home, or you can live here as second-class citizens, but sorry, this is what it is. That's exactly what Israel says to the Palestinians, to the indigenous Palestinians. Uh, This is the state of the Jewish nation and uh, no one else can have equal rights. Being Israeli does not entitle you to equal rights. You have to be Jewish to enjoy the full set of rights. Those who are not Jewish are treated as what I call relative humans, humans only in the relative sense. So we are entitled to a relative set of human rights because human rights are due to humans, full humans that is, not us, the subhumans or the relative humans.
2: I want to ask more about this Uh, argument about Israel's character inside the Green Line, but you use the phrase indigenous Palestinians. Um, I think most Jews, certainly many Jews, um, uh, would consider ourselves indigenous also to
3: Israel-Palestine. Do you agree? The Palestinian nation was not uh, ever uh, a monolith. It was never a pure one group or another group When I say Palestinian, some refer to Palestinian Arabs as indigenous to this land, have lived there for many, many, many centuries, we've always included Jews. I mean, Jews are part of our makeup, our history. So saying Jewish-Palestinian wasn't uh, such uh, a difficult term. My grandmother, whose family was ethnically cleansed from Safad, her best friend was a Jewish family, from a Jewish family, and uh, they did not realize that this family is Jewish or this family is Muslim until during the Nakba, until there was this uh, uh, division. But for, for many, many, many years, in fact, my grandmother's mother, and, I, and I've written about this, breastfed the, uh, uh, my grandmother's uh, uh, friend because her mother was not able to breastfeed her. And I don't know if you know, in Arab culture, and those Jews were Jewish Arabs, they're part of the Arab society. In Arab culture, if, if a woman breastfeeds a child, that child becomes equivalent to her uh, daughter or son. So that my grandmother's Jewish friend became, in a way, a sister of kind. So, so my grandmother's uh, uh, um, a brother, for example, cannot marry that Jewish girl because she's considered a sister of his. So, I mean, those were the relations uh, uh, pre-settler-colonial establishment of the State of Israel. Uh, Jews are part of this history and part of this heritage and part of the indigenous Palestinian people.
2: Um, On the question of Israel um, in its internal character, I I, I know that uh, you've made reference, I think, to the the laws that have been chronicled by the uh, Palestinian uh, civil rights group Adala, uh, the, the, the discriminatory laws. When I look at the Adala list, Um, It includes some things like the fact that there is a requirement that there be a a menorah on Israel's stamp or that there be a Star of David on the flag or that Hebrew must be used in government correspondence or uh, the Hebrew date must be used in government correspondence. I think there may be an exception for Palestinians in that or that there's a child vaccination law that you can lose child allowance. You can lose allowance payments from the government if you don't have your vaccinations. And that's considered discriminatory because I think some Bedouins uh, don't have vaccinations at higher rates. When I look at a fair number of these laws, they strike me as not necessarily that different in character than the kind of laws that one would find in European countries that we would would consider democracies where where you have a cross on the flag, where you have a, a preferential immigration policy for members of a certain ethnic group, or again, in the United States where we have voting rights laws that I think many people believe in effect end up discriminating against African Americans so again my concern is that if one calls Israel an apartheid state inside the green line even though Palestinian citizens can vote is that not such an elastic definition that it could be applied to many democracies around the world let alone Israel's neighbors in the Middle East?
3: Uh, No, it doesn't, it wouldn't apply to other um, quasi-democratic states like yours Um, The point is, uh, some of those laws, you mentioned the softest Mm -hmm. racist laws, but let's take the hardest ones. Mm -hmm. Israel defines itself as not a state of its citizens, but a state of the quote-unquote Jewish nation as an extraterritorial entity. Uh, um, A state that does not define itself as a state of its citizens does not exist anywhere in the world except in Israel. Uh, I cannot think of any other state that excludes part of its citizenry from its very own definition. Uh, um, um, The the second point related to this is land ownership, the most important right. 93% of the land controlled by Israel, through many basic laws, basic laws in Israel, as you know, are constitutional laws. Um, Through constitutional uh, laws that where Israel, the government of Israel, uh, contracted the Jewish agency uh, and the World Zionist Organization, uh, and through the Israel Land Administration, where the Jewish Agency has uh, Jewish National Fund, sorry, has has massive power, uh, these ent- entities ensure that 93% of the land cannot be bought or rented by Palestinians, by non-Jews, in fact, 93% of the land. So. Israel defines rights based on identity of its citizens. Forget the non-citizens, Palestinians in, ref- in, in refugee camps outside or Palestinians in the occupied territories. I'm just talking about Israeli citizens. No, uh, uh, Britain and France have racism. But can we say they're apartheid? No, they, they, they don't have laws that discriminate against part of their citizenry. They might have uh, emblems and symbols of Christianity and, and discriminatory aspects here and there, but do they have laws that disenfranchise a major part of their citizenry based on identity? No, they don't. Israel does. And what about
2: Israel's Arab neighbors? <clears throat> uh, you know, Saudi Arabia, in terms of its treatment of the Shia population, or, or uh, Copts in Egypt, for instance. Um, do you think they would qualify as apartheid states?
3: No, uh, it's a different type of discrimination, but uh, we are, in Saudi Arabia, somebody can make an argument, for example, that women are suffering from some type of apartheid in Saudi Arabia. Uh, I don't know if anyone has made this argument, but I would subscribe to that, yes. Uh, Saudi Arabia is repressive uh, against so many groups, including the Shia minorities, as you rightly mentioned, but mainly against women. Half society is discriminated against by law, so someone can make an argument there. But the U.N. definition wouldn't apply. The apartheid definition wouldn't apply. We need to find a new definition because it it relates to racial group. And the way the U.N. defines racial applies to Jewish Israelis as a nation and Palestinian Arabs as a nation. It doesn't apply to women in Saudi Arabia. They're not a nation. But, I mean, it's very, very equivalent to apartheid, what women in Saudi Arabia are suffering from. And I'm not saying that because Palestinians are resisting Israel's apartheid, that means that there are no other nasty regimes around the world. There's so many nasty regimes around the world. But the one that's oppressing us is Israel, and that's why we're resisting it.
2: So given, for instance, that China is holding maybe, maybe a million uh, Uyghurs uh, in concentration camps of a site because they're not Han Chinese, you wouldn't lead a boycott of China, but if some people were to support, to raise a boycott of China on the grounds that that reflects a kind
3: of apartheid, you would be sympathetic to it? Yes, as a human rights defender, I have to be morally consistent. If an authoritative voice of an oppressed community calls for boycott uh, uh, as recourse against an oppressive regime, I would personally support it. So if Yemenis were to call uh, for a boycott against the Saudi regime, I would wholeheartedly support that Uh, uh, if women in Saudi Arabia were to call that. If any minority group being oppressed, uh, occupied, ethnically cleansed, and suffering from uh, denial of basic rights were to call for a boycott, an authoritative voice of that oppressed group. It can't be just a couple of individuals or a couple of ivory tower academics. It has to be an authoritative voice. I would certainly uh, support that. Because I I truly believe, as as Angela Angela Davis says, uh, justice is indivisible.
2: Um, uh, one of the questions that's been raised about the BDS movement is why the, B- the, BDS, movement, why the BDS movement does not take a position on the ultimate political settlement uh, 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 in, in, in Israel and Palestine. And I wanted you to explain why that was.
3: Sure. There's a matter of principle. As a human rights movement, it's beyond our mandate. We're focused on ending the three main aspects of Israel's oppression in order to have a possibility of self-determination and a just and peaceful solution, comprehensive, sustainable, just, and peaceful solution. There is no way to achieve such a solution without addressing an end to the occupation, end to apartheid, and the basic rights of Palestinian refugees under UN laws. Um, Now, that's the main reason. The second reason is, is much more, how should I put it, much, much simpler, actually. The B- Palestinian BDS coalition, which is the largest coalition in Palestinian society by far, it includes all the trade unions, women's unions, farmers' unions, academics, you know, just about every main entity in Palestinian society, cannot agree on anything beyond the three rights. Uh, Palestinians, as anyone would know, disagree on so many things. We have many internal debates. It's not just a Jewish tradition, it's very much a Palestinian tradition to have all these disagreements. <laughs> Uh, So we stick to the three uh, planks in the BDS call, because venturing beyond that would not maintain the coalition. We would disagree. Uh, One state, two states, what the political solution should look like, it's up to the Palestinian people uh, to to exercise self-determination. It's not up to the BDS movement. We are part of the popular resistance, and we are the most important solidarity movement with the Palestinian struggle for rights. But we are not the leadership of the Palestinian people. We cannot make such a decision or envision what the political solution should look like on behalf of the Palestinian people.
2: So as a, as a Jewish person who myself is engaged in many of these arguments with my fellow Jews, one of the things that I feel an obligation to do is when Jews uh, uh, reflect values that I think are, are contrary to my own, to say so publicly. Now, of course, it's different, I recognize, because I, as an American uh, Jew, or if I were an Israeli Jew, have rights that Palestinians don't have. but um, do you, there, given that there are elements in the Palestinian national movement like Hamas that I would assume do not share your values um, when it comes to women, when it comes to LGBT people, um, when it comes to the rights of, of secular people, do you feel that you have an obligation to publicly challenge them given that they don't share a vision of Palestinian politics and
3: society that you do? We have a, a responsibility and a moral obligation to... Uh, um to convey our values and to spread our values in society. So we we do not shy away from publicly uh, expressing support for LGBT struggles, for women's struggles, for equality of all people, irrespective of identity and so on. We're not embarrassed to say that. We say it in in all languages, in Arabic, in our speeches. We say that all the time. Some people do not like it, but tough. Those are our principles as a human rights movement anchored in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights if any Palestinian group were to uh, take any position against uh, a minority group, against uh, a group that's entitled to certain rights, we would stand with others uh, to oppose that. And and many of us are active in so many uh, groups. So it's not like the BDS movement has to address every ill in Palestinian society. And believe me, we have quite a few ills in Palestinian society. We're active in so many other groups. Each one of us is active in other groups, some in the women's movement, some in the workers' movement, some in other movements. Uh, um, some, Some of us are artists and dancers and musicians, and they fight for their right to free expression when dance groups in Gaza are repressed I, as a former dance choreographer, signed petitions condemning the repression of dance companies in Gaza, for example. So we do that, but in in other capacities. We don't have to do everything from within the BDS movement because it's beyond its mandate. So
2: In 2003, the Palestinian Authority wrote a constitution. Um, The constitution says in Article 4, Islam is the official religion in Palestine. The principles of Islamic sharia shall be a main source of legislation, even though freedom of religion will be respected, and Arabic shall be the official language. Is, is this, this, to me, suggests a vision of a Palestinian state, which, uh, has, which in some ways is illiberal, privileges Muslims and uh, Arabs over non-Muslims and Arabs. Does it, is this discriminatory in your view?
3: Uh, I think it can be argued that it it discriminates, um, and I personally would prefer something along the lines of the South African constitution, which I think is superior to many other constitutions uh, around the world, where people are treated as equals regardless of identity. That's what I personally believe in. Uh, Mm In the bds movement we have not taken up this issue it was never raised by the way in the bds movement but i as, as as a human rights defender and i'm speaking for myself not for the movement i certainly stand for equal rights full equal rights for everyone irrespective of identity i would not support any discrimination based on religion uh, ethnicity uh, any form of identity uh, sexual identity gender identity or otherwise
2: I, w- I came across a quote of yours from um 2009, and you were talking about the vision of one state that you support, um, because I understand is the B, although the BDS movement does not take a position. My understanding is that you yourself personally are in favor of one of one equal state. Um, and this was the quote: um, you said, "I am." This is in an interview with Elec- in Electronic Intifada. Um, I am completely and categorically against binationalism because it assumes that there are two nations with equal moral claims to the land and therefore we have to accommodate both national rights. So I read that as suggesting that although you believe that uh, Jews uh, have individual rights, you believe that Palestinians but not Jews have national rights. Is that correct?
3: Okay, let me explain this. This might take longer than we can afford but I can start to explain it at least. Uh, It it relates to the right to self-determination of peoples under international law. In history, this right evolved, especially with the United Nations, but at no point in South Africa, in in Algeria, under French settler colonialism, or any other situation, in no situation in history has any colonial community claimed the right to self-determination in a colonized territory. Uh, Self-determination is meant uh, specifically to allow uh, a group under oppression, a minority in a state, or a group that's occupied by a foreign power, or a group living in an indigenous community under settler colonial rule, to to fight for its rights. The self-determination aspect is the main, the pillar of all other social, political, uh, cultural uh, rights. Uh, That's one point, the, the, the theoretical point. Now, more to the concrete question. Jewish Israelis do not recognize themselves as a nation, Nobody in Israel recognizes Jewish Israelis as a nation. In fact, the Supreme Court of Israel has struck down several attempts by liberal Zionists to have their identity as Israeli, their civic identity, uh, in the registry rather than as Jews uh, because they were uh, um, secular atheists and, and believed that they are Israeli. They wanted their civic identity. The Supreme Court rejected that. Knesset certainly rejects that. So Israel does not accept Israeli nationality at all. There is no na- Israeli nationality in Israel. It's the only country on earth that does not recognize its own nationality. It recognizes 130 nationalities, but Israeli is not one of them because Israel defines itself as not an Israeli nation. It's a state of all Jews, of, of the Jewish uh, uh, nation. So, but assuming, so there is no Jewish Israeli nation to speak of because Israelis don't recognize themselves as a nation. But assuming Jewish Israelis were to wake up tomorrow and say we constitute a nation with a common history, a common language, a common culture, and so on, and we want to claim a right to self-determination. It never happened in history that a colonial community, and that's what it is, can claim self-determination in colonized territory. So what do you do then in a, in a one-state solution, which is, as you rightly said, it's beyond BDS. BDS does not take a position one state, two state. I personally support an egalitarian uh, democratic state for everyone with equal rights. Um, how do you deal with that? Well, as whites were integrated into the nations of Cuba and and other countries where they became part of the indigenized population, if you will, then they exercised self-determination as part of the people, not as a separate supremacist group. Whites in South Africa, having lived there for more than three centuries, never claimed a right to self-determination as whites. Afrikaners never made that claim. Uh, with democracy in 1994, they became part of the South African nation, so they exercised self-determination together with the indigenous uh, communities, the majority blacks. Uh, so that's that's the key point. The last point I wanted to mention, Peter, that you might object to settler what, what, colonial. What am I saying? Well, some honest Zionist leaders, like Ze'ev Jabotinsky, as far back as the 1920s, said, and I have a quote right in front of me. I can read it, uh, that we are colonizing uh, this uh, land. And it's normal for the colonized to reject this. And that's why we need an iron wall to, to, to drive despair into their minds so that they will stop resisting us. But he recognized that this was a colonial project.
2: So just to understand so your, your, your vision, your, your, what you were saying is that Israeli mm-hmm. Jews uh, would be considered, would become Palestinians, and therefore would exercise national self-determination as Jewish Palestinians? Is, am I understanding it correctly?
3: Uh, more or less, I didn't say Palestinians, but I said yeah, a, a shared society with equal rights for all, including the refugees.
2: Just one, one more question. Um, so one thing you probably, I know you spent part of your childhood in Egypt. My grandmother is from Egypt, um, and one of the things you just used to say to me uh, when I was growing up, and this is something that one hears from Mizrahi Jews pretty frequently, is um, uh, whether is we don't want to be minori- we don't want to be a Jewish minority again in an, in a majority Arab country. Um, and I was surprised a bunch of years ago to find a quote by Edward Said. He was interviewed by uh, Ari Shavit in 2000. And Shavit asked him, assuming that in this one state, Jews will be a minority, what do you think things will be like? And I want to quote Said, and I want to ask whether you agree with him. Said said about, about what life would be like for a Jewish minority in a one state with an Arab, a Palestinian Arab majority. Quote, Said said, I worry about that. The history of minorities in the middle east has not been as bad as in europe but i wonder what would happen it worries me a great deal the question of what is going to be the fate of the jews is very difficult for me i don't really know it worries me does it worry you no it doesn't
3: Uh, i think um, if you go back to andalusia the golden age of um, of jewish uh, uh, integration into an arab society the golden age of Jewish culture and philosophy and, and, uh, and, and literature and, 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 and so on and so forth, uh, it was, uh, by, the, by, the, by the standard of, of those times, uh, it was uh, a much more uh, homogeneous society, much more egalitarian society than the rest of Europe, where there were pogroms against Jews and, and uh, systematic racial discrimination against Jews, not to mention massacres against Jews. In the Arab East, we did not face that same a uh, um, very violent anti-Semitism that existed in the West. Uh, so Jewish communities in several Arab countries have thrived in, in many different ways. Uh, yes, there was discrimination. In, in several countries, there was discrimination. But as I said, it did not reach anywhere close to what was happening elsewhere. Now, even if one did not feel that I want to be a minority, a Jewish minority in a majority uh, uh, state, um, ruled by Arabs or ruled by Trump, uh, I, I, I'm not sure. But regardless, I mean, is the Jewish minority in the United States uh, feeling, pre-Trump, feeling that as a minority it cannot coexist with this white, uh, non-Jewish majority, and, and blacks and Latinos, and Latinas and indigenous and so on, Asians and so on? Uh, uh, it's a matter of how you build the society, how democratic it is, how egalitarian it is, and how uh, bound it is to the rule of law. If you have laws that discriminate, if you have policies that discriminate, and most importantly, if you have a culture, regardless of laws, if you have a culture of racism and discrimination, every minority would have a right to feel uncomfortable like your grandmother. But if we start envisioning a society with equal rights and and an, an egalitarian culture that truly respects and celebrates difference and diversity, then people who are different should not be worried
2: Okay, so we're going to go to the audience now. Um, uh, do we have someone, do we have a microphone? Or I, uh, Okay, we have microphones on the, on the right and left, so great. So why don't I just start on the, the left side? Why don't you just go over to someone who's close by to you? Um, uh, and we'll kind of toggle back and forth. And um, please make sure it's a question sure. so other people have a chance and, um, uh, and ask Omar your question.
4: Uh, thank you. My name is Nzafarsakh, the Museum of the Palestinian People here in D.C., a uh, personal friend of Omar, uh, thank you very much for this, and my question leads from where you just stopped. Um, the theoretical answer makes sense, right, so that is equal, in theory, in the U.S., everybody's equal under the law, but the practice is different, right? So, as you said, there's the issue of the culture being egalitarian and respect for all the cultures, so from your perspective, what has worked with you? How have you, com- how, what, can you share with us an example of you being able to convince a Jewish Israeli of that future in which they themselves, the Jewish Israeli felt they would be able to express themselves and be free to wear the kippah, to uh, uh, respect the Sabbath, for example, and trust that the majority, uh, non-Jews in that country, Uh, would guarantee that, right? It's not just the laws. And I think that's the main challenge. Logically, the argument makes sense. I'm not sure affectively it does. What has worked for you affectively and not uh, logically? Thank you.
2: Are
3: we taking a number of questions or shall Uh, I answer each one?
2: Let's just do one at a time for now. We've got some time.
3: Okay. Okay, this might divert the discussion from BDS, because as I said, my position on one state, two states is unrelated to the BDS uh, movement. But I've written about my vision of uh, one state. Uh, It it was published in Mondoise as part of a Jewish Voice for Peace uh, series of articles. So so please, uh, Nizar, uh, you're welcome to read my article there. It answers uh, that question, how to achieve this uh, kind of culture that respects and celebrates diversity and celebrates the rights of minorities uh, so that we reach a point where people do not feel threatened or do not feel coerced to, to, act, uh, to, to, to act like the, the majority, and they cannot express their, uh, their identity.
2: Um, great. Maybe someone over, over here. Uh, yes.
5: Thank you, I have two questions. Um, The first is on the indigeneity uh, argument that Peter raised earlier. You spoke about how Jews who have ancestors have lived in Palestine for hundreds of years are Palestinian, but you didn't speak about Jews who currently live in America, but I mean, 200 years ago, their ancestors may have lived in Europe, and 1,000 years ago, their ancestors may have lived in Babylon, and 2,000 years ago, their ancestors may have lived in Palestine, and since Passover approaches 5,000 years ago, their ancestors may have lived in Egypt. Um, to where are those people in, 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 indigenous? Um, the second question is um, about um, Initiative 922 in Israel, which is trying to kind of collapse the gap uh, between Palestinian citizens of Israel. I can't
2: hear one. Uh, the, uh, did you hear the first question? Uh,
3: uh, uh, not very clearly. No, uh, there was a problem with the sound. It was a bit loud, so I couldn't hear most of the words. Sorry. Uh,
2: okay, well, let, let, me, let, me, um, let me try to rephrase it, and then you can tell me if I've gotten it wrong. I think the first question was, what about Jews who were not living in Palestine 100 years ago, but Jews who may have roots in Eastern Europe, but before then, uh, in Babylonia, and then before then, again, as Jewish tradition says, uh, in in uh, what we consider what we call the land of Israel, are are those Jews indigenous? Is that is that fair? Okay. Why don't you try with a second? And Omar, if you're not hearing, just you know, shake. Uh, let me know, and I'll I'll uh, I'll rephrase that. Go ahead. Slower.
5: The second question is about Initiative 922 in Israel, which is attempting to collapse the gap between. Uh, Jewish Israelis and Palestinian citizens in Israel. Do you think this initiative is worthwhile and Israel trying to do the right thing, or do you think this is window dressing and uh, Israel trying to prove that it's supposedly liberal while in fact just ignoring the occupation?
2: Did you get that, Omar? Yes. Okay, yes. great, so two questions, please.
3: Okay, I'll start with a second. I haven't heard of that initiative, honestly, but it sounds like window dressing, sorry. Um, As far as uh, indigeneity is concerned, who doesn't have roots in Palestine? I mean, maybe some in China don't, I I, I even doubt that. I think most civilizations have occupied Palestine, what's now historic Palestine. Uh, Who doesn't have roots? I mean, uh, the Romans, the French, the Brit, everyone has roots in Palestine. Many had kingdoms for far longer periods than the Jewish kingdom in, in tradition. So who has a right? Uh, We're talking about the indigenous people who live there, uh, who have the roots now, not based on some book that claims that, with all respect to to holy books uh, 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 from all traditions, but we're talking about people who live there who must have rights now, who must have equal rights now. There's international law to govern that. We cannot go back, and every group uh, from the Persians to the Romans and everyone in between claiming indigeneity in Palestine, because they would have a much more compelling case, believe me. Uh, based on how long they ruled the land that we call Palestine. Uh, So we cannot go uh, to that uh, level. And regardless, no one can exclude people living in the land from their rights just because of a claim that 2,000, 5,000, 3,000, 10,000 years ago, my community claims to have lived there. So what? You have no right to kick people out uh, uh, just because there is a claim that thousands of years ago you lived there. And just to give you an example of And it relates to the issue of refugees that Peter asked me about earlier. While many Zionists reject the Palestinian claim to have a right under international law to refugees to return, uh, the World Sephardic uh, Federation won the right to have uh, Jews uh, from around the world who have ancestry in, in, in Spain or Portugal to go back after more than 500 years of being expelled 500 years, and still the right is maintained for Jewish Sephardic communities to return to Spain and Portugal, but the Palestinians who were expelled in 48, 71 years ago, have no right? What double standard?
2: OK, the next question. Um, uh, ma'am, right here in the front. Yes. Uh, wait, wait wait, wait, for the microphone. Uh, it's right here in the front, if you just bring down the microphone.
6: Um, thank you for having this. This is really interesting. Um, my name is Ilhan Kagri, and um, I know we're not allowed to make comments, but just real briefly, I would urge people to go to um, Israel and the Occupied Territories because you can't understand apartheid until you see it inside Nazareth and inside what's going on in Bethlehem and the other, con- uh, the other cities in the Occupied Territories. But um, my question is, uh, I've heard that set- the whole settlement issue is really about big business, and that's why the BDS movement uh, is so um, important, and also uh, it strikes a big blow because, because it, it is an economic, it does hit uh, what is really an economic movement, the settlement movement. So could you talk about the issue of uh, the whole settler uh, thing being about, uh, or just the economics of, of, of the settlements?
3: Okay. Uh, Among Israelis supporting BDS, there's an internal debate uh, whether economics are more important than ideology in the occupation or or vice versa. Uh, um, I think now with Israel's steady shift to the far right, especially with the current government that will make the 2015 government look slightly liberal in comparison, uh, 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 I I think uh, uh, this issue becomes uh, more or less settled. It's a combination of both, I think. There are economic interests, certainly, in the occupation. Israel benefits greatly from the occupied territories through pillage of water, minerals, resources, uh, 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 collecting uh, taxes, uh, um, selling us uh, stolen water at extremely exuberant prices, and so on and so forth. Uh, Settlements certainly benefit a lot from stolen Palestinian land and stolen Palestinian water uh, resources. Uh, um, and cheap Palestinian labor that's coerced, that has no other place to go except work. Uh, um, Twenty to 30,000 Palestinians work in settlements because Israel has deprived them of their fertile agricultural lands, and they have nowhere to, to, to sustain their families without working in, in, in settlements. So they are economic uh, projects. Now, BDS does not focus only on the economy. It sees a combination of pressures, academic, cultural, sports, uh, economic, as well as military embargoes. Uh, But we have succeeded uh, with quite a few cases of pressuring uh, businesses to abandon uh, projects that violate international law, especially in settlements. Uh, uh, Admittedly, it's easier to target companies that do work in settlements because it's a clear-cut violation, and settlements under international law are considered a war crime under the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court. So that was an easier case. But but settlements do not constitute a major business uh, for Israel. The occupation does, but not settlements per se. They're not a major business for Israel. They are a source of income, but not a major source.
2: Great. Next question? Um, uh, sir? Yeah. Just wait for the microphone. Uh,
7: thank you, uh, Mr. Beinart. Thank you, Mr. Barghouti. Um I'm a member of J Street U at Columbia, um, and I heard you, Mr. Barghouti, when you came and spoke at Columbia, I was very impressed. Um, I'm not a supporter of the movement, but I respect your advocacy for Palestinian rights, um, and I wholeheartedly support your free speech rights and your constitutionally protected right to boycott. Um, My question for you, and you addressed this a little today, but I'd like to hear it more directly, is how you square the fact that traditionally some of Palestine's strongest supporters slash Israel's biggest detractors have been major human rights violators themselves. Nasser, Gaddafi, Assad, even Maduro in Venezuela. Sorry, sorry. uh, Omar, can you hear?
3: I missed some words after how do you, and I missed something. Okay,
7: Okay, so so, so come back and and, and speak slowly. Sorry. Uh, My question for you, Mr. Barghouti, is how you square the fact that traditionally some of Palestine's strongest supporters and Israel's biggest detractors have been major human rights violators themselves. Nasser, Gaddafi, Assad, Maduro, the hardline theocracy in Iran. Um, Now to be fair, as you mentioned, many of the Israeli government's allies today are no friends to human rights themselves, Putin, Modi, Orban, Bolsonaro, and of course Donald Trump. But it still remains the case that much of the pro-Palestine and anti-Israel activism around the world comes from religious organizations and regimes that have little respect for basic human rights. Um, For this reason, many pro-Israel leaders charge you and some of your fellow BDS supporters with hypocrisy. Do you think, as a leading advocate for the rights of Palestinians, you would be on sure moral footing if you called out such allies for their own moral travesty Um, and not allow them to sort of, you know, uncritically support you while they use the issue of Israel-Palestine to sometimes distract from their own repression.
3: Did you get that? Uh, Thank you. Yes. Yes, I did. Thanks. Uh, Actually, if you're talking about the 50s, 60s era, the question of Palestine was one of the most popular causes of all oppressed communities all people in the global south uh, around the world it was one of the main uh, causes Uh, uh, even after that nelson mandela famously said that uh, their freedom in south africa would not be complete without freedom for the palestinian people Uh, and some international law experts like john dugard uh, who's also south african a judge from south africa said that uh, palestinian rights have become the litmus test for international law If international law fails the Palestinians, many in the global south will feel that they've been abandoned by international law, that international law just speaks to the uh, hegemonic Western uh, powers, basically. So as human rights defenders, I take issue with the premise that most supporters of Palestinian rights come—most support comes from religious groups and states. And and so this uh, is—I don't know where the premise is based on, certainly not on facts. Uh, In the BDS movement, the absolute majority, if not all of our allies, are those struggling for black justice in the U.S., for indigenous justice, for women's rights, for LGBT rights, trade union's rights, uh, uh, student uh, groups that are progressive. At NYU, for example, now we're hosted by NYU, Uh, not too long ago, 50 student groups uh, at NYU succeeded in getting the student government to endorse a divestment a very strong divestment resolution. 50 student groups, those who did not support were, you know, some crazy uh, right-wingers and Christian Zionists and and, uh, far-right groups, basically. Almost every progressive group was with the BDS group supporting that resolution. Increasingly, we see that uh, uh, many, many connections are being created, especially with the black movement and the indigenous movement in the United States, and we're proud of that. So, no, our allies are all... Progressive are all involved in justice struggles, and we truly see our cause as connected. Because without being united, w- there's no way we can defeat the ultra right that is rising and the fascism that's rising ar- around the world, from from Tel Aviv to Washington and from Brasilia uh, to Delhi.
2: Nice question. Um, uh, go ahead. To the, on the left. Okay.
7: Hi, uh, this is Sammy Tayyub. I am um, I have a question. It's a two-pronged question, but it relates to the same thing. So um, what should the BDS movement response be um, uh, in relation to the increased normalization of with Israel by the Gulf states, by the Arab Gulf, and as well as what should the BDS response be in response to uh, 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 proposed legislation here in the United States, anti-BDS legislation here in the United States in some states, such as Texas and New York, et cetera. Thank you. Uh,
3: thanks. Yes, just to explain to the audience, because the term normalization is not readily understandable uh, in English. Uh, in English, normalization sounds good. After states and a state of war, they normalize relations. Uh, it's a translation from Arabic, which means, which means making something inherently abnormal appear to be deceptively normal. So a relationship between a master and a slave is inherently abnormal. there shouldn't be uh, there should be no slavery. So if a master is dancing with a slave, it's never love, it's rape. That's just to put things in, in, in perspective. So Israel is trying to normalize relations with despotic authoritarian Arab regimes, uh, as I mentioned, uh, uh, Saudi Arabia, Emirates, Bahrain, and, and others and others, and it's, it's uh, making some headway uh, there. But does it win the, the popular support of the peoples of those countries? Yes, they're despotic, but it doesn't mean that the rulers speak for the people. Uh, in fact, in most of those countries, according to statistics from 2018 even, the absolute majorities in those countries, including Saudi Arabia, still consider the question of Palestine as the leading question for them. Still consider Israel, uh, regime, Israel's regime of oppression as a clear enemy of, uh, of Arab states. So um, yes, Israel can make peace and normalize relations with the Spartan regimes, but not with the people. Uh, Until there's an end to oppression, until uh, rights of refugees are recognized, occupation is ended, and apartheid is ended, there is no way to have normal, not normalized, normal relations of everyone in this region. Uh, As far as the second question, the anti-BDS legislation in Congress. Now, uh, most people in Congress are well-educated. But uh, it it's, it just shocks me to read this those anti BDS legislation, that the number of lies and and fabrications and uh, it's just horrific. Is there no fact checking in the United States for God's sake? I mean, can anyone just do a basic fact check, checking? Uh, it's just amazing. And the second point, regardless of the fabrications, how can the United States, with its proud heritage of respecting boycotts as a matter of freedom of speech, protected by the US Constitution, accept this McCarthyism, what the American Civil Liberties Union rightly called McCarthyism? We're living through McCarthyism 2.0, an evolved version of the earlier McCarthyism, where loyalty to Israel's far right regime is the litmus test. Uh, and when states pass anti-BDS legislation, they're not betraying Palestinian rights only. They're betraying the U.S. Constitution. They're betraying your civil rights. And no one is safe. If they get away with this, if they get away with suppressing free speech on Palestine, who knows who's next? LGBT supporters, blacks, Latinos, who knows who's next?
2: Great. Um, I want to go over here uh, uh, first, and then we'll go back. I often hear um, uh, uh, BDS accused of not really um, being uh, in favor of a potential two-state solution as well as a one-state solution because the argument is made that since you believe in the right of return, an unlimited right of return, that that will inevitably mean the destruction of the Jewish state. Would you, my question is would you in theory be in favor of a negotiated solution with a a limited right of return that was capped at some amount, so that there was still a Jewish majority, but that that remaining Jewish, quote unquote, Jewish state would be a state of all its citizens
1: and not a preferential treatment for Jews.
7: Hmm.
3: Let me try to unpack that. the, the movement does not take a position on two states versus one state. We think the three rights must be accommodated, regardless of the solution. So, even in a two-state solution, each state has to comply with its obligations under international law, which means that both states have to recognize the rights of Palestinian refugees to return. And this is a this is a fact. This is under international law. It's not debatable that no state has a right to deny refugee rights simply because of a certain claim, uh, divine or otherwise. To, to enjoy a certain supremacy. I More than any other state, I'm on a pedestal above everyone else. I have a right to maintain a supremacy. No one has a right to maintain a supremacy. No one. Uh, if former victims can claim a right to supremacy just because of their past victimhood, uh, the world will be a real, real mess. Uh, uh, so, so no one has that right to claim any supremacy. No Palestinian in their right mind would accept a supremacist state in Palestine. And uh, I think in in Congress, they misrepresented me. So maybe give me a chance to read the actual quote that I uttered, rather than the misrepresentation in in the congressional bills, both Senate and House, misquote me. So I will read my full quote. And this was said in, in, in a discussion about one state and so on. I said, a Jewish state in Palestine, in any shape or form, cannot but contravene the basic rights of the indigenous Palestinian population and perpetuate a system of racial discrimination that ought to be opposed categorically. Just as we would oppose a Muslim state or a Christian state or any kind of exclusionary state, definitely, most definitely, we oppose a Jewish state in any part of Palestine no Palestinian, rational Palestinian, not a sellout Palestinian, will ever accept a Jewish state in Palestine. Accepting modern day Jewish Israelis as equal citizens and full partners in building and developing a new shared society, free from all colonial subjugation and discrimination, as called for in the democratic state model, is the most magnanimous, rational offer any oppressed indigenous population can present to its oppressors, so don't ask for more. End of quote.
2: Um, go ahead, sir. Uh, yes, okay.
6: Um, Brother Omar, I have a question uh, about the uh, PLO. Um, the PLO uh, is right now uh, uh, probably more of an obstacle to the achievement of BDS's goals, three goals. Um, and there has not been free elections, free and fair elections since I think 2006 or seven, right? Um, what, what is the best approach to take towards the PLO from the Palestinian camp's perspective in your opinion?
3: Uh, yeah, thanks for that. Uh, you're welcome. The, in the, in, in, sorry, is there? You're welcome. Okay, okay. In, in the BDS movement, uh, we all agree that the PLO is the sole legitimate representative of the Palestinian people, despite all the problems you mentioned. There is an integral undemocratic uh, tendency in the PLO, no elections, no democratic mandate. It lost a lot of its uh, representativeness. Uh, It hasn't done any democratic work with communities, women, uh, workers, farmers, teachers, and so on and so forth. Uh, My father was one of the founders of the PLO, and I remember how it was. It was never perfect, but I certainly lived the days when we had a lot of democracy. When I was a student at Columbia University, as was, I was part of the General Union of Palestinian Students, and we were truly democratic then. There were true democratic elections uh, then with various blocks and independence. I was an independent uh, all the time, and, and there was a true debate and a true democracy then. We've lost a lot of that, but I think we Palestinians do not have the luxury of, of just putting aside the PLO and thinking of creating a new creature out of scratch. When we are so oppressed, so dominated by a hegemonic power, supported by the US president and, and others, we do not have the luxury of abandoning our only embodiment of Palestinian identity, which is the PLO. We have to rebuild it, we have to democratize it, we have to reconstitute it to be more representative of all Palestinians, rather than just abandon it. That's.
2: Um, oh, I think, Omar, are you there? Uh, you froze. Um-
3: Yes. Sorry, you did not hear me?
2: Uh, uh, no, no, no. I think you, you, you were just uh, finished uh, talking about um, how you didn't have the luxury of abandoning the PLO. Was there, was there more? No, yeah. No, that's it. Well, I want to know how. Uh, I, I, I end on the luxury note. Okay. I, I want to make sure other people get a, a chance. Uh, go ahead. Uh, the, uh, yes.
0: I was really struck by your comment about the woman in the Knesset who said, um, as long as they love Israel, even if they're anti-Semitic, we we like them. It seems that the difficulty in our country for the BDS movement is that the BDS movement is saying, we're opposed to the Israeli treatment of the Palestinians. We are not anti-Semitic. We don't like the way the state of Israel is working, and yet the BDS keeps getting complaints of being anti-Semitic. So I I find that, you know, how can it be so clear from an Israeli knesset how how can that be used for the BDS movement here? I guess is is my major question. And is it is it also confounded by the fact that as you're saying, Israel defines itself as a Jewish state, so therefore anything that might be opposed to the actions of Israel can then be turned to be opposed to Jewishness.
3: Yes, uh, thanks for this. In fact, uh, thanks to the work of uh, Jewish Voice for Peace and more than 40 Jewish organizations across uh, the world, uh, this uh, conflation between Israel and Jews uh, is put to rest. Uh, many progressive Jewish groups are fighting this notion, including some liberal Zionist groups in the United States, some senators, some, some uh, representatives in Congress have fought this. When Netanyahu famously came and addressed uh, Congress and speaking on behalf of the Jewish nation, many Jewish Americans objected uh, to that. Uh, I would say Jewish millennials largely object uh, to this. Now, other than being historically wrong, uh, Jews were never a monolithic group. Uh, No one can claim that all Jews are one and the same, and one can speak for them. I personally assert that such a claim is itself anti-Semitic. Anyone who puts all Jews in one box and say all Jews believe this or support that, or one group is representative of all Jews, is is making an anti-Semitic statement. Because it's reducing Jews to something that's not human. If you're human, you have diversity. Only, only Jews can, do not have diversity. That can't be. That's an anti-Semitic uh, statement. So even when Israel makes that statement, that it represents, represents all Jews, speaks for all Jews, it is making an anti-Semitic statement. And in fact, it is feeding real anti-Jewish bigotry. Uh, there are so many anti-Semites out there that would love to associate every crime Israel commits against Palestinians, be it a massacre in Gaza and ethnic cleansing in Jerusalem or in the Naqab, uh, uh, to claim that all Jews are responsible for that, because look at Netanyahu, he's saying, I speak for all Jews. But thanks to progressive Jewish groups, that claim is challenged. No, he does not speak for all Jews. There's so many Jewish groups that, uh, that uh, support Palestinian rights, and many who find what Israel is doing uh, 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 absolutely criminal, and, and does not speak for them. So we should never fall into the trap of making this conflation between opposition to Israel's policies, even ideology, and attacks on Jews as Jews, as, as an identity, as a religion, as an ethnic uh, group. Uh, uh, that's absolutely racist.
2: I think we're getting near the end. So um, uh, maybe what we'll do is take three more questions. Omar, if it's OK with you, we'll ask all three questions, and you can fold your final answer sure. into a response to, to all of them. Um, OK, uh,
3: sir, you over here, number the first. Um. Uh, In this uh, same uh, setting, um, I don't know, a month ago um, the former uh, speaker of the Knesset uh, sort of jokingly uh, said that um, Israel is spending more money opposing BDS than the damage that BDS is doing to Israel. Uh, uh, I wonder if you could sort of give an economic accounting and uh, state whether that ledger is, is correct and uh, maybe the uh, economic accounting is not, is not the central issue, maybe the moral issue. Uh, uh, so if you could uh, sort of respond to uh, that comment.
2: Okay, uh, another question? Uh, at the very back? Yes, yeah, it's you, they're just coming with a microphone. Uh, hi, I was just curious. Uh, many people have commented on the BDS movement and its original declaration uh, from 2009 that, as you state, the BDS movement is against Israeli occupation. Uh, but many people note that the term in the declaration is not defined. So, do you then consider oh, yeah. Israeli occupation as encompassing Tel Aviv? Is I can't. I can't.
3: So, okay. Sorry, if you can.
2: Th- that that the can. Question, was, that question was the BDS uh, the call refers to Israeli occupation of Arab lands, uh, and I the question is do those Arab lands own, are those does, is Tel Aviv considered uh, uh, par- occupied uh, Arab land? Okay. Is that right? Did I get Thanks. it right? Okay. All right. Do we have one last question? Uh, yes, you're the last question. Just wait for the microphone. Hi, yeah, my name is Calvin, uh, and I organize here in DC. I wanted to know what type of ways
3: uh the Black Liberation Movement has intersected with the Palestinian movement and how more can we do that or how more can uh us, you know, black citizens That's here,
2: uh, oh, sorry. Um, okay, um, why don't you uh, finish the question, and then I'll try to do my best. Yeah, uh, right. I just
7: wanted to know what was the intersection between uh, the black liberation movement here um, in America and what and how we intersect with the Palestinian movement, and what more can we do here? I know, for instance, here in D.C., there are some um, groups here working against the Israel police exchanges. We have the NPD here training, getting trained by Israel police. Um, so what more can we do, and is that stuff, stuff effective?
2: Did you, did you get that, Omar?
7: Yes. Yeah. I okay. Got it. Thanks. Great.
2: So we have these. Uh, we have these three different questions. One on where, on the economic impact. The second on when Tel-, Tel Aviv would be considered occupied Arab land by the BDS movement. And the third about how uh, Black citizens in the United States can can work with um, with the Palestinian movement.
3: Uh, Israel's regime of oppression does not give us the pleasure of knowing our econ- our full economic impact, but there are some indicators. Maybe many do not know that Israel has a full government ministry dedicated to fighting BDS. It's the Ministry of Strategic Affairs. Its declared budget is some $100 million. Uh, uh, Its official budget and some other monies uh, allocated to it. But in in an uh, undercover Al Jazeera uh, um, report that many of you may have seen, the lobby, uh, uh, one of the senior officers in that ministry spoke about hundreds of millions of dollars being spent. Uh, That and the money spent by the lobby, uh, be it the traditional Jewish lobby or the Christian Zionist lobby, it amounts to literally hundreds of millions of dollars are spent every year in fighting BDS. And no, Israel is not irrational, totally. I mean, yes, some... The leaders there uh, are questionable. But as a system, it is not that irrational. It would not invest hundreds of millions of dollars unless it was losing billions of dollars. There's no reason to invest all this money uh, just for the image. Uh, uh, And in fact, the Rand Corporation in the United States, uh, which is not exactly a BDS supporter, I'm sure many of you would know, in 2015 did a study that said if BDS uh, continues uh, on its uh, track, it might end up costing Israel up to 2% of its GDP. Uh, 2% in today's numbers, that's about $60 billion over a 10-year period, or $6 billion a year, if you think of that. That totally can offset the entire U.S. complicit military aid to Israel over this 10-year period. The soft human rights uh, uh, peaceful movement can end up being that impactful on Israel's regime of oppression. So that's one thing to... to uh, to remember, I have several indi- other indicators of economic impact, including some of the biggest companies in the world abandoning projects that violate international law, Israeli projects that violate international law, such as Veolia, the French conglomerate, which abandoned Israel entirely in 2015 after losing more than $23 billion worth of contracts and tenders from Sweden, Ireland, the UK, US, Kuwait, and other uh, countries. And there are many, many other indicators. Major churches in the US have divested from uh, companies doing business in the occupation. Uh, The Gates Foundation divested from G4S because it was involved in Israeli prisons, and so on and so forth. So we're addressing now major pension funds divesting from Israeli banks or from American companies like Caterpillar, Hewlett-Packard, that are involved in the occupation. Uh, uh, That's that's a mainstream impact, uh, economic impact uh, for BDS. But do we have exact figures? Unfortunately, we don't. We know it's very impactful, but we don't know the exact impact. And there is no way to claim that such a powerful economy like Israel would be shaken by that loss. Israel has a very powerful economy, admittedly, mainly thanks to your tax money. Uh, 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 But BDS is certainly making a dent, an economic dent. And our work in the cultural and academic boycott do certainly translate with time into an economic uh, boycott as well. As far as the second question, uh, the BDS call of 2005 was interpreted. A million times by the Palestinian BDS National Committee, which leads the global BDS movement. In no obscure terms, we said all reference to occupied territories refers to the 1967 occupied territory that is Gaza, the West Bank, including Jerusalem, and the Syrian Golan Heights. Why is that? Is it because Jaffa and Nazareth were not occupied? Well, not according to international law. Since this movement adheres to international law, The United Nations does not consider Nazareth, or Jaffa, or Haifa, or or Aqqa occupied. Uh, It was colonized. There was a a, a system of settler colonialism and ethnic cleansing, for sure. Uh, But does the United Nations recognize that part as occupied? No, it doesn't. So we adhere to international law. Uh, uh, But you have to see the three goals of BDS uh, in unison, together ending apartheid, respecting the right of refugees, and ending the occupation of the 1967 uh, territory. Uh, The third point is uh, about black liberation, and uh, thank you so much for mentioning the Deadly Exchange uh, campaign. This campaign, which was championed by Jewish Voice for Peace, and many in the black community joined it, and other minority groups have joined this campaign, has already achieved some successes. Uh, in, in North Carolina and elsewhere, some city councils have decided to end police exchange with Israel after seeing the compelling argument by human rights activists that uh, there's enough racism in the uh, U.S. police uh, forces. You don't need to bring in Israel's factor with its militarization and ultra-racism and and, and uh, horrific crimes committed by the Israeli police. That's not exactly a school where uh, U.S. police forces should learn about how to control uh, crowds. We saw what this Israeli education led to in Baltimore, in Ferguson, and many other places where uh, U.S. police have become militarized. They they look like the army. They don't look like police uh, any longer. So black communities are seeing the commonalities of our struggles from as far back as Malcolm X to Angela Davis and Mark Lamont Hill and others today. I think black leaders do see the, 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 the equivalence between the oppressions. Many black leaders have said this is worse than Jim Crow, uh, uh, including Angela Davis, uh, and many have said that we cannot achieve black liberation, uh, full black equality, and, and, uh, and, and social justice and economic justice for the black community in the U.S. without seeing what the U.S. is doing elsewhere supporting oppressions elsewhere so when we say that we have to unite to face this common enemy of oppression and ultra fascism and the white supremacists it's not just a slogan it's it's an ethical position but it's a necessity indeed it's an existential necessity for us as oppressed communities we've got to band together otherwise we cannot prevail
2: Omar, Omar, thank you. I hope uh, I'm going to turn you. it over to Jim Zogby to have the last word, but I hope that one day uh, uh, we will be able to have this conversation in person.
3: Thank you. Thanks, Peter. Thank
1: you. I want to thank all of you who've come and those of you who are watching this being streamed online. And Peter, I want to thank you especially for coming down from New York to, uh, to conduct what was a very meaningful interview. Uh, I really appreciated the questions asked. And Omar... Uh, 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 I feel um, like, as an American, we owe you an apology uh, for what (laughs) we've done. This is not just the situation where Omar can't come and speak to an American audience that deserves to hear him, but his daughter's getting married in a few weeks, and he was coming to the wedding here in the States. um, And if we do not push back, uh, he'll miss that wedding. So I thank you so much, Omar, under these circumstances. I think I would not have been cool, calm and collected, you as always uh, were. Um, I think any of us watching this know why people wouldn't want him here. Um, he's scary, smart and uh, um, and I don't know, but I think it's a good question, and I think we'll try to try to try to accommodate look look, I urge you to support us in this effort to allow. Omar to come to the U.S. Um, Americans deserve to hear him, um, and he deserves a chance to be heard. Uh, You cannot have a situation where we are denouncing someone, misquoting them in legislation, creating a situation where I can see in the not-too-distant future a congressional committee opening with the question, uh, are you now and have you ever been a supporter of the BDS movement? That's the direction we're moving in. And it needs to be countered, and it can only be countered in reason, discourse, and conversation. This is what we tried to do today. Uh, I hope we'll be able to continue it, and I thank you all for being a part of it. We hope to intensify this conversation as we move forward. Thank you very much.